mm-hmm. is that um, our food enchants us. You know, it's when you're in the supermarket, when you're in your kitchen, uh, our food has really been packaged and designed to enchant us. Uh, all of our senses, how it looks, how it smells, how we hear it sizzle or bake, uh, and uh, the memories that it elicits. So that pause is an attempt to achieve disenchantment. Do you believe that God wants you healthy? Then join me, Cersei Blue and Gigi Carter on the Healthy For My Purpose podcast, where we help you realize the relationship between your health and your purpose. We share how eating like Daniel can revolutionize your life. Through discussions and interviews, we challenge you to discover the powerful connection between plant-based nutrition, your body, and your faith. It's time. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Healthy For My Purpose. I'm so excited for the month of February. We are going to be talking about children's health. I think this is so, so important because although Gigi and I really speak on adult issues, overcoming chronic health issues, getting healthy for your purpose, and living your best life as an adult, one of the things that Gigi and I really stress, especially when we talk about breaking generational patterns of poor health, is being able to leave a legacy for our children. And a lot of times it starts from planting those seeds early on in a, child, in a child's life in terms of what does healthy look like? How does it show up even in a child's life? And especially for children that are already showing signs of chronic health issues like obesity and high blood pressure and things that are really more of an issue today than it's ever been. And so I believe children have purpose even from a young age. And so they too need to grasp the concept as getting healthy for your purpose. But us as parents, we are the guiders and we are the educators and we are the modelers of this concept. And so I'm absolutely excited about this month because we have some guests that are going to be coming on and really coming from the perspective of what's going on in the lives of children when it comes to health. So today, Gigi and I are absolutely honored to be talking to Dr. Lee Ettinger. Um, you guys are going to love him. He's otherwise known as Dr. Herbivore. He is a plant-based rock star. He... um is certified in general pediatrics, pediatric nephrology, and obesity medicine. And so he really um, gives us the truth behind childhood obesity. And he gives us so much wealth of knowledge from his long career, his experience. Um, He's also certified in plant-based nutrition as well. And he's been named... um, as a New York metro area top doctor for the past six years. So um, you guys are going to love this episode. If you have a child or you know someone um, that is dealing with childhood obesity or it's on that border of entering into that arena, you want to get this episode into their hands. Um, So it's a wealth of information. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the wonderful Dr. Lee Ettinger. 
Welcome, Dr. Lee Ettinger. We are so excited to have you um, to have this discussion around health, even as it pertains to children. Um, so we're going to just dive right in um, and get right to the topic. But can you talk to us a little bit about what you see in your practice? I know a lot of times when we talk about chronic health issues and things like that, we tend to talk about it from an adult perspective. But can you tell us what you see you know, on your everyday interaction with patients and children, what kind of illnesses do you see that's related to a poor diet? Um, and what specific health conditions are coming up? All right, happy to talk about it. But first, thanks for having me on your podcast. This has been uh, very exciting for me to be on your podcast. So in my 17 years as a pediatric nephrologist taking care of kids with kidney disease, pediatricians would refer me patients with high blood pressure. And there's a concern in pediatric age group that high blood pressure can be due to a kidney problem. So I would rule out a kidney problem, I'd rule out a heart problem, I'd rule out a hormone problem. And I'd be sitting there with a family with the child's body mass index, 30, 35. Um, and here the child has uh, high blood pressure, which like you said, we often worry about diseases in adults like high blood pressure, type two diabetes, but starting to see them more and more in, in the younger age groups, unfortunately. And then I also worked for three years at, uh, at my hospital in the pediatric weight management program. So we were a referral center for the nephrology, for the weight management. So pediatricians in the community, if they had a concern about a child's weight, if they had a concern about a child having kidney problems, they would come to me. So I got kind of got a, uh, a very selected group of patients. Uh, I wasn't in a general pediatric practice. Uh, I was seeing more of the selected patients that had these diseases, had these concerns. So for the people who are listening that don't know what a body mass index is of 35, can you put that into perspective in terms of where that is in relation to a healthy weight versus, you know, considered mm -hmm. obese? The ideal body mass index is considered 20 to 25. If you're 25 to 30, that's considered overweight. And then over 30 is obese. Uh, this is just a screening tool. Uh, it certainly, if you're carrying a lot of muscle mass, if you're an athlete, then you can have a very high body mass index, but not have the increased risk factors of obesity. But if you're carrying extra body fat, and your body mass index is high, then there is concern for developing these chronic diseases like hypertension, heart disease, diabetes. So, but it's just a it's just a screening tool, and we do it a little different in kids because, uh, well, for adults, it's the body weight divided by the height squared, and your height's pretty constant as an adult, I hope. Um, but for the kids, they're growing, so their denominator is increasing, and so. Uh, sometimes the goal isn't for a young person to lose weight, but rather to maintain weight and let them grow into the weight uh, and uh, get their body mass index back into the desirable range. Now, you kind of hinted at this um, uh, earlier with your comment to uh, or answer to Cersei's question, but what's the correlation like between childhood nutrition and the onset of adult illnesses like heart disease, obesity, and type two diabetes? Unfortunately, highly correlated. Um, often when I'm sitting there with a young person with an elevated body mass index, uh, one parent has already had bariatric surgery, another parent has diabetes, a grandparent has heart attack. Uh, unfortunately, 
um, there does seem to be a lot of correlation. Now, is it their genes, perhaps, or is it that everyone's sitting around the same uh, dinner table eating the same foods? Yeah, that I, I'm glad you brought that up because, so can you tell us like when you do have a family or a child that's coming in that you're working with to on obesity, how do you counsel the parent um, in the sense that, um, you know, I've known many families who they're trying to work on one particular child in the home that has an obesity issue, but maybe the other kids don't, or maybe the par one parent does and another one does. And so how do you counsel a parent in, in a family system? Because, you know, can you have a one child eating one thing and another not? So how, how, how is it a family affair or how do you address that in, in the context of a family? Yeah, hopefully the whole family is on board with making changes. It's hard, uh, not likely to be successful if you're singling out one child. And sometimes there are situations where uh, you have a child where the family is trying to help them gain weight. They're having, they're, you know, too thin in the parent's eyes, or they're having growth problems. So sometimes you have a situation where they're trying to encourage one child to eat more, while at the same time, trying to encourage one child to eat less. But um, the counseling, I try to convince people or reassure people that it's not their fault, that uh, we're living in an evolutionary mismatch, a time when um, our uh, history, historically, we've been uh, in have these desires to seek out calories because calories were scarce. And so we're seeking calories. We used to have to work hard to get our calories and now it's just simply too easy to get our calories. So while we're having these urges to seek out calories, they're all within easy reach. And so it's just the way we are designed. And unfortunately we're in kind of the wrong environment. So it's nobody's particular fault. Uh, that when you're faced with a decision, should I eat the higher calorie food or the lower calorie food? You know, a lot of kids say, oh, I don't like vegetables. Oh, I don't like, uh, you know, the greens or the salads or, or this or that. And really it's just the child is designed to seek out higher calories to grow. And for most of our history, uh, that was the right choice, but unfortunately now it's become the wrong choice. So the child and even the parent might be thinking they're doing the right thing by, uh, you know, these instincts to feed or even overfeed our children for the upcoming famine, but the famine's not coming and uh, the calories are always available and our body's doing the right thing. It's storing fat for the upcoming famine, but that famine's not coming. At least I, I don't foresee it. I hope it doesn't come, but uh, we're preparing in the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now you mentioned earlier um, genetics. So, um, and, and not really looking for an exact number, but just kind of a gauge, like as far as childhood obesity and um, those obesity related cases, what, you know, kind of how much is it directly related to lifestyle and the foods that are being eaten um, versus a genetic factor? Like is like kind of what's the gauge on that, on those two things? Right, there certainly are some known genes that will cause uh, hyperphagia, you know, the just constant eating. Um, and there certainly are some genes that will cause some obesity. Those are, those are very rare, uh, but there are genetic tests available. Often the child will have uh, that as part of a whole syndrome. So if there's learning problems, if there's, certain uh, appearances, uh, a syndromic appearance that the pediatrician hopefully can recognize and combination of this 
this insatiable appetite, for example, then hopefully the pediatrician will recognize these and send to a genetic specialist for testing. But those are, those are very rare and, and you often have to have several findings together. It's not just the one, uh, per, one child with obesity that you would think of that first. Uh, that's more uh, along the algorithm of figuring out if it's genetic or not with these other criteria. Um, so for the parent listening, um, <clears throat> and they're trying to figure out, you know, what are some practical things like tools that, that they could actually implement in their home to kind of get their family back on track? Maybe it is something extreme where they'll have to see you as a specialist. But even if it's not, but, you know, they could get a sense that, you know what, our kids are playing too much video games now. They're not outside like we used to be, you know, they're gaining weight. The parent may be saying, you know what, I really want to start to be more health forward in my home. What are some tips that you can give a parent that's saying, you know what, where do I start? My kids hate veggies. They're always on video games. They, you know, whatever, I need help. Well, what would you tell them? Yeah, I wish I had an easy answer to that question. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's why I try to work with the families on an individual basis and understand uh, their goals and uh, the barriers to helping them achieve their goals. But in general, I do encourage a more plant-centric diet, especially because it uh, crowds out uh, higher calorie density foods. And so I don't want the child to feel hungry uh, because that can lead to more eating later in the evening or even at night uh, if they feel uh, that they're being, being deprived, but rather reaching for the lower calorie density foods that are often higher fiber and higher water content that will fill you up. So for example, I'll, I'll encourage families to have a banana conveyor belt in their kitchen. So uh, you go to the market and buy uh, the brown spotty bananas, the yellow bananas and the green bananas, and you put them on the shelf in the kitchen. So when someone's hungry, as soon as they walk in the kitchen, uh, before they go uh, to grab some ice cream before they open the fridge or the pantry, just seeing these bananas and eating uh, the sweetest banana, uh, the brown spotty one. And when they're all done, hopefully the yellow ones have become brown spotty, the green ones have become yellow, and just uh, filling up on the bananas because, uh, you know, if they grab a cheese stick, for example, uh, that's smaller than the banana, but has three or four times the calories of the banana and has no fiber in it and has less water in it. So like a banana can just really fill someone up. And even if you eat a second banana, you're still getting less calories than the cheese stick. So trying to crowd out the higher calorie density food with the, the, with the lower calorie density foods, high fiber, high water, those are the plants, the non-processed plants. I love that idea because you're making the fruit visible in the kitchen, like before anything else. So it's like right in your face. You can't help but notice it and then at least pause and think about it. And um, it's a brilliant idea. I actually might implement that in my own home. <laughs> so, I, like, um, right. I like I like how you said pause, um, because that's another philosophy that I like to treat uh, or, or uh, discuss is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. is that um, our food enchants us. You know, it's when you're in the supermarket, when you're in your kitchen, uh, our food has really been packaged and designed to enchant us. Uh, all of our senses, how it looks, how it smells, how we hear it sizzle or bake, uh, and uh, the memories that it elicits. So that pause 
is an attempt to achieve disenchantment, uh, to say, um, why am I craving this food? Well, it's because of all the stimuli. Um, and and uh, I try to teach people to take that moment to pause and have curiosity. That's what mindfulness is. And say like, do I really, am I just bored? Uh, am I hungry? Uh, you know, what, what am I doing here? And have that moment of, of uh, curiosity, which hopefully helps you uh, get to a better decision. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. So I want to switch gears just a little bit um, because um, you reached out, well, we connected, I don't know, it must have been last year about an article that you wrote on um, B12, the evolution of B12 and a plant-based diet today. Can you just, you know, for the listeners, just share a little bit more about that article, um, what it's about, and then kind of and we'll, we'll include a link to it in the in the show notes, but what it's about and then also kind of what inspired you to publish that. Yeah, so I, I was working on my blog and actually this idea came to me many years ago, just as I was learning about the need for B12, just something jumped out at me. So uh, plant-based people need B12 because uh, it's made by soil bacteria. And the problem is today our food is too clean that... Uh, fruits are grown hydroponically and never touch the dirt and our lettuce and greens are triple washed. And so if you're just eating the plants, they don't have enough exposure to this bacteria to get uh, some B12 on them. And so if you're strictly eating plant-based, you're at risk for developing a B12 deficiency, which uh, can cause permanent nerve damage and cause anemia and fatigue. And so it's certainly something that everyone who's eating plant-based should be aware of and take a supplement. Now, the omnivores and meat eaters are eating the B12 from the animals that live in dirty conditions and also um, eating dirty grains and corns and soybeans like that. So they get their B12 and some of them are even injected and supplemented. So this, um, you know, you go back to the Bible and there's, I know you're proponents of the Daniel fast. So um, just in learning about the Daniel fast and um, wondering if there was a message in there and um, I, I'm a big fan of Carl Sagan, the astronomer. And he has this um, uh, called the Sagan Standard. It was named after him. It says that uh, for him, he was looking for alien life as an astronomer. Uh, and for someone to prove that they were uh, visited or seen an alien, uh, something that would be very uh, uh, reassuring or would kind of confirm is if the alien gave them a piece of information that no one else knew, and that could later be proven. So if the alien says, hey, Joe, or whoever, um, I'm from this galaxy, and describes in detail the galaxy, and the galaxy is so far away that our, our telescopes can't see it. But years later, you know, Joe shows, shares this the world, with the world, um, but years later, uh, we develop a telescope that is able to see that galaxy so far away. And sure enough, Joe's description was perfect about this galaxy, how the, you know, the size and shape of it and um, every scientific piece of information, then that would prove that Joe actually was visited by a higher being, someone that knew something about a galaxy so far away that we couldn't see. So going back to the book of Daniel and Dan the Daniel fast, uh, it was interesting to me that Daniel um, was in the service of the king and was getting educated and I like to say it was the first complaint about school food is that he didn't want to eat. <laughs> he didn't want to eat the king's food <laughs> as he was getting his training. 
So um, per presumably because the meats were not according to his kosher law. So he ate uh, the plant-based diet and he was in training there for three years. And it was also interesting to me in my medical training that actually we have about three years worth of B12 in our liver, stored in our liver. And that just seemed to be a too coincidental. <laughs> like, um, is this message written over, you know, in the Bible 2000 years ago um, to only eat plant-based for three years? Now, Daniel wouldn't have developed any signs or symptoms of a B12 deficiency because he was eating dirty food. They didn't have any idea about that. So going forward, uh, and they had no clue about vitamins then, uh, but going forward now um, in the 1800s, uh, people started to discover the germ theory of disease and hand-washing became important. And in the early 1900s, antibiotics were uh, discovered. And all this was going on, chlorine was added to water because of the cholera epidemic. So through the 1800s and early 1900s, uh, we were getting exposed to less and less bacteria. So someone eating plant-based during that time uh, might have been starting to develop a risk of uh, B12 deficiency if they continued for longer than three years, right? Because then that, that's when they would run out of their stores. So was this message, and vitamin B12 wasn't discovered until 1947. So, the, and the first, the first of the vegan term was, dis, was um, coined in 1944. So you can see someone in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as the food was getting cleaner, if they were only eating plant-based and they stayed for more than three years doing that, they would develop risk of B12 deficiency. B12 wasn't discovered until 1947. So was there a message during this critical time for plant-based people, hey, uh, just do it for three years, no more. That's gonna be dangerous. Be like Daniel. Is this making, am I clear or is it? Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a concept, but I don't, yeah, it's hard to, I don't know. I, I feel like it's a little bit of a stretch um, to, I think it's more of a coincidence of the three years. Sure. Um, and, and certainly, yeah. And certainly um, those who believe, in, you know, have faith in things uh, don't need this kind of proof, don't need a, a closed yeah. case proof, right? Um, but I just thought it was interesting that there might have been this message from long before uh, vitamin B12 was known to, uh, mm -hmm. to only eat plant-based for three years. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's, a, I think it's a, a, a nice analogy to kind of um, weave into the dynamic of what we already know, right? right. We already know Daniel was eating a plant-based diet. And if you, you tag the three years with the, with the plant-based, like you said, it's, it's this little, um, I guess, nice thing to kind of merge into the story. Now, whether it's factual or not, we don't know. But like you said, it just makes you pause to kind of mm -hmm. give you that, that, that thinking of, hey, wait a minute, maybe plant-based diet, three years, B12, all of that way before the time as if this was something that we were going to be looking at way in the future. So it kind of goes with that whole alien thing. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. Who knows, yeah. But yeah, were you going to say something, Kiki? No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. I was just going to say, well, 
Yeah, that, that's quite intriguing. I love articles like that because it makes you think and, and have mm -hmm. a, uh, your imagination and kind of figure things out. Um, but as we kind of circle back to close, um, did you have any last comments or thoughts just as we frame this up in terms of um, children just getting healthier in general? I know you talked a lot about that we're, we're just like in a different cultural time where children are you know more sicker than their parents children are having ailments you know at such younger ages that we would only have seen these things in adults um any just last comments on you know on that whole issue there and as we close out for what's happening now well i'm a big like you i'm a big proponent of the plant-based diet i think that uh, the plant-based diet has a way to keep people full and energized and getting a lot of vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and all the stuff that uh, is in the plants. And uh, I'm trying to encourage young people and young people are starting to get it because uh, not only for the health, but the health of the planet and for the ethical vegans, for the animals. And there's just uh, so many good reasons. And now even uh, we have influencers and musicians and athletes and artists so what i also like to work with the families is figure out you know what the what the kid is into if they're into a particular sport or into a particular genre of music i can usually find someone or out there pr promoting a plant-based diet so that's nice too uh, so that they can uh, follow along on their social media kind of thing but uh yeah i enjoy working with the families and and I hope that uh, the plant-based diet even gains more and more uh, popularity. It hopefully is a good solution for people that are struggling in this mixed matched environment that we're in. Um, On it, because I know a lot of times when in the counseling setting, families come in with a child that has an issue. And so families come in like, okay, fix my kid. But then they, when they realize, wait a minute, this is a family system and there's no fixing a kid, everyone has to kind of play a role. So how does that work with, with, with this, with a child that has an obesity issue or, or a chronic health issue? Do the families have a rude awakening when they realize, wait a minute, I have to be a part of this solution. This is a family affair. How do you get everybody on board? Because that just seems like my child is a little bit overweight. The doctor says I need to see the specialist, but I, they were bargaining to come into this like on that level. So how, how do you have them buy in on such a level? Yeah, that's a challenge. I try to figure out the family's locus of control. So there's this uh, personality trait in that uh, someone with an internal locus of control tries to use their own to fix or their own um, determination. Whereas uh, someone with an external locus of control wants or uh, expects a powerful other person or even luck to fix their problems. And there's really, I'm not judging people because, for example, for nutrition, I like my own internal locus of control. I like to learn about nutrition and feed myself and feed my family. Where, But as soon as the um, light comes on my dashboard that I need an oil change, I go to a more powerful mechanic uh, to fix my, uh, my, um, my oil because I don't have that ability and I'm not interested in, in learning ability. So if I go to the mechanic and he says, uh, to me, okay, uh, your dashboard lights on, here's the can of oil, go home, get under your car, use this piece of equipment. You know, if he treats me like I have an internal locus of control that I want to learn how to fix that, I'm going to be uh, disappointed. <laughs> uh, so 
Um, likewise, my mechanic, uh, if he's feeling sick, he wants to go to the doctor and he wants the doctor to fix him because he has an external locus of control about his health. So um, when I was working with families, for example, with high blood pressure, I try to get a sense of their locus of control. So um, are you coming here to, for me to teach you uh, how to lower salt in your diet, how to reduce your risk of high blood pressure problems with lifestyle and, and diet? and exercise and things like that? Or are you coming here with an external locus control that you expect me to write a prescription? And I'm happy to do that because I can certainly fix your blood pressure with that. Um, so I, I would really try to match the person's expectations. And it's the same with obesity in that um, if someone comes in and wants to learn how to fix the obesity themselves, they're gonna want to learn about nutrition. They're gonna wanna see a nutritionist or wanna talk to me about how to make dietary and lifestyle change. Uh, they're going to listen to your podcast because they want to learn about nutrition and and what you have to offer. They're going to enroll in cooking classes, things like that. Whereas someone who comes to me with the obesity and says, oh, doc, fix me. And I'm thinking, okay, you have an external locus of control. So that kind of person I might send to a bariatric surgeon. That's the other, that's the other person that's powerful that's going to fix their problem by making their stomach smaller. Um, or uh, they're going to, uh, you know, they're actually commercial weight loss programs that say, drink the shake in the morning, drink the shake in the afternoon, and then have a sensible dinner. That person has given up their control over what foods they're going to choose. They have an external locus of control. They're paying for the commercial weight loss program to give them drink this in lunch, drink this for breakfast, eat this, eat this dinner kind of thing. So uh, again, giving up uh, the control over the food choices, but trying to figure figure out what's going to work for them. Uh, so like someone with an internal locus of control gets sent to a bariatric surgeon, it's not going to be a good fit. If someone with an external locus of control gets sent to a nutritionist, it's not going to be a good fit. So I try to figure out the best fit for the families. Oh, do you have a lot of children? You mentioned high blood pressure. You're seeing that more frequently. Do you have a lot of children that are actually placed on high blood pressure medications at a younger age? And if so, What's the ramifications of starting? Because I know on average, you know, they say, you know, when you're in your 30s, 40s, you're probably starting to develop high blood pressure. Um, what's the ramifications of having children on medications starting so young? Right. So I was the pediatric nephrologist at a major medical center for the 17 years. I've since left that position to focus on pediatric obesity. But yes, during the 17 years, I prescribed a lot of blood pressure medicine for a lot of kids. It's been tested, you know, it's FDA approved. Uh, these medicines are safe and effective and uh, there's a wide range of classes of medicines, but uh, yeah, it is uh, to address these risk factors uh, that are associated with high blood pressure. We know that high blood pressure causes its heart problems and strokes and things like that over years and decades. So we weren't having those uh, outcomes in pediatrics, but the goal was to lower the blood pressure so that instead of them having a heart attack when they're 60, you push it back to 70 to 80 to 90. Um, that was the goal of lowering the blood pressure even at a young age. Awesome. I one last question and then we'll, yes. we'll turn it back off. But you know, I have I know some families where you know the child is used to eating a lot of highly processed foods, you know, the pizzas the, you know, the frozen foods and things like that. What are some of the steps that you give parents to re-set um, the child's palate 
um, in terms of what is acceptable, what isn't. I know as an adult, we could kind of understand the process of sometimes things are not gonna taste good for a little bit, but as a child, when it's about instant gratification, it's like, no, I want my pizza, I want this and all your peers. How do you have them you know, reintroduce new foods in the context of like a child, which will be a little more difficult to, to um, understand that concept? Right, it's a, it's a big challenge. Um, yeah, there has to be, uh, the, the, it's better when the family does it so that the child's not singled out. Um, there has to be some guidance from the parents as to like, oh, we're gonna eat this now, we're not gonna eat that now. Um, certainly trying to make the healthier foods, I would say, um, more fun for the child. Uh, so it doesn't seem like a chore to eat them. But um, yeah, this is, this is a, a big challenge and um, I don't have an easy answer for that. Uh, but certainly getting, uh, that's why I, I like working with the teenagers better than the, or I should, you know, the elementary school kids are, have different challenges, but sometimes the teenagers are starting to get it. And um, uh, I, I also, I go, through, um, I go through the health belief model with families. This is something that uh, I find helps me understand what their goals are. So with the health belief model, um, try to learn the, their cue to action. So what's actually brought them in to the, see the doctor with the concern about the weight. So for example, you know, that might be uh, that the child's uh, being bullied um, or that the child has feet pains because uh, they're carrying around the extra weight. So something brought them in. Um, if there's been no acuity action, you know, sometimes I'll talk with a teenager and they're like, oh, I feel fine. I'm, I'm the thinnest of all my friends. <laughs> you know, what's the big deal? Um, and uh, I say, okay, well, you know, you weigh 240 pounds now, uh, when would that number start to be a concern for you? And they say, oh, well, you know, I might, I might start to feel bad if I hit 270. I'm like, okay, well, I wish you the best. I hope that you don't get there, but if you do, I'll, I'll be here for you. And you know, we can come back and talk. So trying to get a sense of their motivation at that point. So then we uh, try to understand their perceived uh, threats. So uh, what has got them worried? So, you know, they, they came with a cue to action. What is the perceived threat is, uh, well, uncle just had um, uh, a heart attack or, or the neighbor uh, just had, um, uh, was diagnosed with diabetes. So, you know, these are the things that maybe have them worried. Uh, this is the guy who goes into the doctor with a headache, but is really worried about a brain tumor. Um, so, so try to get drilled down and, and see what, what brought them in uh, and uh, what they're really worried about. And then we go over uh, the benefits. So, okay, so, you know, you have this goal, say of losing 10 pounds, what, what do you think will happen if that happens? And, you know, I had uh, an elementary school kid says, you know, I, I just want to have more energy. I want to keep up with my friends. I get so tired so easy. So that's the, that's the benefit. And uh, uh, one young lady was like, oh, you know, if I, if I reach that goal, I'll look great in my prom dress. So, you know, on one hand, she's worried about diabetes as the threat. Uh, but the benefit is looking great at prom. <laughs> so the, they don't necessarily need to connect. So um, once, once we uh, understand uh, the threats and the goals and the benefits that, that this individual person has, then we go over the barriers, which are you know, the things that, uh, all the myths that we have in our head that uh, the gym's 
uh, too expensive, too far away. Uh, uh, all you really need is go for a walk. <laughs> um, or where am I going to get my protein? <laughs> uh, especially you hear that a lot. So um, these are the things that we're, we're holding on to and that we, we put in our own way. And so I try to brainstorm with the family, again, reflecting back. Oh, yeah, well, I hear you want to get to the prom looking fantastic. How, you know, how can we do that? And trying to help them overcome their barriers. So uh, that's, that's what I do. With the family. Thank you so yeah. much for joining us. It was a pleasure to see you again and have you um, on our podcast. Um, and uh, how can people get a hold of you? Well, thanks for having me. So I'm licensed in New York and New Jersey, and I hope to see uh, children ages 2 to 21 who are struggling with their weight and want to learn more about the plant-based diet. I have a telemedicine practice, so you can meet me online and we can, we can talk. And the telemedicine really offers a lot in that uh, uh, we can chat, but what I also like to do is uh, kitchen tours and see what people have. Do they have the bananas out, for example? And not that I'm cataloging what's in your fridge, but it's, it's also, it's often interesting. A family will say, oh, Dr. Andrew, I'm not gonna show you what's in this store. Oh, Dr. Andrew, look at all these fruits and vegetables. So, um, so it's nice to see, um, I think the telemedicine is nice for the families. They don't have to do the uh, driving and parking and sitting in the waiting room. And it's nice for me that I get to see people's home environments and what, what their kitchens are like. Uh, so there's the, the telemedicine for New York and New Jersey. And then I have um, the blog where I've been writing and um, on social media is Dr. Herbivore all over the place. And I started giving free webinars uh, for adults. Uh, I enjoy talking to groups of adults about the plant-based diet, making dietary changes. So I have those coming up and there will be some uh, paid premium content in the future too. But for now, I'm just enjoying giving the free webinars. And you can find about those on my website, the drherbivore.com website under the live events tab. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you. you. And we hope everything works out for you and what you're doing. Thank you so much for your Thanks. work. Thank you for joining us on the Healthy for My Purpose podcast. We hope you enjoyed the community and are walking away empowered and encouraged to live your healthiest life for your God-ordained purpose. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram to enjoy fellowship with like-minded women. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this on iTunes. Until we meet again, keep honoring your body for your purpose.